scripture reading is Psalm 6, 8 through 9. Away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. And the second reading is Mark 5, 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to begged Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Victoria. Well, we continue our series today in the miracles of Mark and just an exploration of Jesus' miracles and how they are more than just the miracles themselves, but a demonstration of who Jesus really is, revealing his character, his, his heart, his compassion, his rest, and last week, his, his peace that conquers all other fears. And up until this point, Jesus' miracles have mostly been viewed as positive. Uh, wonderful expressions to everyone around him, except, you know, those Pharisees who are always going to be opposed to his ministry. But in chapter 5, Jesus has now landed across the Sea of Galilee and arrived at Gerasenes, a region east of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is now entering into Gentile territory. And here we see in the story that, that Jesus' ministry is addressing three specific parts um, that he was brought about to bring about redemption. And so more than just, again, another exorcism, we see Jesus interact with three specific parts of his ministry, which is the individual, the cultural, and the cosmic. 
And if there was a way to sum up everything that I was going to say today, if there's one thing that you can take away from this entire narrative is that Jesus' mission is to bring about individual, cultural, and cosmic redemption for his own glory. And so we're going to explore this by examining two main points of today's message. One, individual, cultural, and cosmic sin. And two, the individual, cultural, and cosmic gospel. Uh, but before we do that, uh, can we pray together? Let's pray. Father, be with the preaching and teaching of your word. Open our hearts and minds to receive it, breaking the deadness of just hearing another speech or a lecture, but hearing it as your word, the double-edged sword that penetrates our soul and spirit, joint and marrow. May it fill us not just with information, but fill us with the renewal that Jesus brought, not just for ourselves, before our entire world. Preach to us now, in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. So let's dive into today's text and find, find, first examine the individual, cultural, and cosmic sin of Mark chapter 5. Jesus' first encounter in Gerasenes deals with a man with an unclean spirit. Now, a demonic possession at this point in Mark's gospel is nothing new. Uh, Jesus has healed a great deal of individuals and cast out demons, but Mark makes it a huge point to note that there is something different about this situation that warrants a special examination. A note here that gives us evidence of Jesus's future ministry. The individual sin here is obvious from a Jewish perspective. The individual sin is he's a Gentile. He's a pagan worshiper approaching a rabbi from an unclean position. Spiritually, this man would have been the kind of person that no Jewish rabbi, certainly not the one with Jesus' growing popularity, would associate themselves with. But it goes far beyond that in terms of his individual sin. He was a prisoner, and clearly this unclean spirit had affected him in such a way that he was stubborn because nothing that people could do to subdue him worked. He was committed to self-harm, cutting himself with stones, deeply emotionally ruined, crying out all the time. He was in every sense the kind of individual that was broken by his sin, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Sin had covered and made an impact in every way, shape, and form in this individual. But we must remember something about the nature of sin. It's not just about being shaped by your personal sin, as a sinner, but also being shaped by the ways that you've been sinned against. Now, every person in this room can relate to this in some way, shape, or form, that we have all been sinned against in a way that transforms us, changes us, either for God's greater purposes or, perhaps in the case of this man, greater sin. The culture that surrounded this man was a culture that gave up on his own dignity, they tried shackling him and chaining him, treating him as inhumane. They caused him to live away from the city and instead live like an animal in the caves. The repetition in these verses, these opening verses of no one could, meant that no one could stop this man from being bound, but also that they had given up on trying. The culture viewed this man as unredeemable a punishment of judgment from the Gentile gods that this man deserved nothing but condemnation and banishment. 
the culture would leave him to die. Out of sight, out of mind. When we pull back the microscope even further, ultimately you will see the cosmic spiritual forces that are at work here in this man's life. This man was demonically possessed by not just an unclean spirit, by a host of demons whose intentions with this man we'll discover later in the text. And their intentions are the intentions of all of the work of the evil one. The cosmic spiritual enemy of God is face to face in this narrative with the most high son of God and he's using this man's life as bait. So as you can see here, it wasn't just one factor of sin, one cultural moment, one spiritual demon, one single thing that you could point to that was destroying this man. It was the culmination of all of the effects of sin, both within him individually, both outside of him culturally, both spiritually around, uh, tr- spiritually around him, both physical, both rational and emotional, all raging war to the point that if you were to look at this man, redemption would seem impossible. So by now you should see that this story isn't just the story of Jesus simply exercising a demon. It's a story of Christ and his battle with all of the complexity and the realities of sin. And it's the story that begs the question, how is Jesus going to handle this? For Mark's original audience to the Christians in Rome around 60 AD, these individual cultural and cosmic sins were front and center for the persecution that they were facing. Christians were dealing with their individual identity of those who were abandoning their worldviews to follow Christ. And yet, the culture was literally burning Christians at the stake because they were being blamed for the burning of Rome. Mischaracterizations by the Roman Empire on who Christians were were complete fabrications. They were mislabeled cannibals because they took a part of something called the Lord's Supper, which they didn't understand. They were dehumanized, claimed to be possessed by demons, and did not accept the gods of their age and refused to acknowledge them as such. You see, it was ultimately a battle between worldviews. They believed that there was one God, not thousands of gods, that their one God was the only true and living God. So the individual, cultural, and cosmic forces at work in Mark's age were hovering over all believers in Rome. And they hover over all of us today. Sin continues to rage against the church, and we are all in need of salvation. Just as an aside, isn't this why we need God in the world today? If you're coming here as a skeptic or just exploring Christianity for the first time, the reality of our need for God in this world is apparent in a world filled with individual, cultural, and cosmic sin. And what's the alternative without a redeeming God? What hope do we have? You look at the situation presented before you regarding the facts of life. You know the sin that resides within you. And despite all attempts at reforming yourself, you fail. And it just makes you feel even worse. And then you look out and you see the sin that exists in the culture, the injustice of our world, its systems, its ideologies, its ethics that lead to so much harm and pain. 
and you despair because you feel personally powerless to engage or even stop what's happening out there. And then you pull back and you look at the grand design and the purpose of the universe. And apart from God, all you see is a cold, lonely, dead universe that makes us and should make us indifferent to the cause of good, but then we feel something in our souls. Why do we call something good? Why do we call something evil? Why does it affect us the way that it does if we are all scientific naturalists? Life starts to become unintelligible without redemption. The great experiences of life don't fill us the way that they used to. And we slowly realize that there isn't anything left for us without a redeemer. As one friend who recently left the faith told me, his conclusion about what life's purpose was, was I just want to make a ton of money and live as comfortably as I can before I die. And to be quite frank with you, dying doesn't sound like such a bad thing right now. An atheist I was really recently talking to, an Ivy League trained writer who spent his whole life as a scientific naturalist, realized that secularism could never be the answer to true renewal because it ultimately led to an unintelligible life. We need something more than the world can give us. We need meaning. We need redemption. So what is the solution to bring in light of all the crushing weight of this man's life, the world around him, the evil that surrounds every aspect and area of this man's existence? The only thing that can conquer individual, cultural, and cosmic sin is the individual, cultural, and cosmic gospel in the person of Jesus himself. And in Scripture, we find that Jesus acts in a way that reveals that Christ is here to answer all of these concerns, to heal the individual, to change the culture, and to conquer the cosmic, demonic forces of sin. Amen. So first, let's look at the healing of the individual that Jesus provides. Look at verse 7. As the man cries out with a loud voice, calling Jesus, Son of the Most High God. What is interesting regarding this narrative is the fact that the man calls Jesus by a name that is more accurate than the disciples, than the Pharisees, than the Jews before him up to this point. As we'll often see in Mark, the people appearing to be least likely to understand Jesus like this demoniac, possessed cave dweller are the people that get Christ more clearly than those who should have known better. This demon-possessed, uh, and this demon-possessed, inhumane cave dweller in the world's eyes actually knows who the Most High Son of God is. And he knows Jesus' power of judgment could torment him if Jesus so choose. The demons residing in this man have a fear of God that they that realize that they deserve judgment and that their demonic reign is finished. Now notice what Jesus says in this response. Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. You know, as I've been reading this more deeply, I'm in awe of this simplicity and yet the wonderful news that Jesus is presenting here. Here we find Jesus separating the individual man 
from the forces of sin that have laid control over this man's heart and his life. Jesus brings the understanding that the demon that is controlling the man doesn't define the man himself. The sins that control the heart of this person don't get to have the last say over his life. Rather, as Jesus understands it, the sins that cover him are not his true identity. It is no surprise then that we find the name of these forces isn't just one unclean spirit, but a legion of unclean spirits that are at work. Sin is unbelievably complex, distorting all things around the person, the culture, and the world that we live in. And we shouldn't be surprised to find that all of them are present in the man himself. But Jesus, however, is greater than all of them. In 1711, in America, a man by the name of Jupiter Hammond was born in Long Island. He was the son of a slave and grew up a slave in a period of history where the idea of a human being of a different color being your property was a common economic practice, a demonic philosophy that perverted the image of God into a person without dignity. The thought of the idea of slavery being abolished in that period of time would have been unthinkable that an African-American would be free to publish books, poetry, and impact the world would have been groundbreaking. By what he could only call the grace of God, Jupiter Hammond learned how to read and write through a Reformed theological education. And he fell in love with the scripture of what it meant about the dignity of man and the dignity of his fellow brothers and sisters in bondage. His writings were so stirring and his poetry so undeniable that at 49 years old, in 1760 America, his poem, An Evening Thought, Salvation by Christ with Penitential Cries, became the very first published work in America from a black author, focusing on the realization of what Christ had done for him and all the hope that Christ gave in a world where hope could not be found. That hope shaped and changed Jupiter Hammond's life radically even as he was wrestling with the idea and even wanting to be a freed man. Because freedom meant for him a greater despair in an era where slavery was seen as a better standard of living that a, for a country that had no idea with what to do with a freed African-American slave. But his hopes changed from freedom in his life to giving the hope of freedom of salvation to others. So instead, he used his position as a preacher, a writer, and a poet, all while being enslaved, asking others to look to Christ. And in his writings, he coded his published works with language that used scripture to carry his true beliefs on slavery. As he grew older and older in wisdom, he was asked to address a group of his fellow brothers in his most famous address in New York at 76 years of age. It was at this grand stage where you could see Jupiter's, Hammond's heart as a pastor. He knew that slavery would never end in his lifetime. And he knew that his fellow brothers and sisters would lose heart at the estate in which their country viewed their own personhood. He wanted them to give reasons to see themselves differently, with dignity and honor, the kind that God saw them with. He said this in his now famous speech, if we could have that quote up, begging and pleading for his brothers to receive Christ. If you become Christians, you will have a reason to bless God forever. 
that you have been brought into a land where you have heard the gospel, though you have been slaves. If we should ever get to heaven, we shall find nobody to reproach us for being black or for being slaves. Think of your bondage to sin and Satan and do not rest until you are delivered from it. Hammond understood the reality that though he would hope the evils of his day would end, he had a Christ that was greater than any darkness that was living in the world or his own heart because he was free from the cosmic curse of sin and will one day be free of the tyranny and evil of his age. This is the hope that makes all of life tangible for the individual soul, both in 1760 America and 2023. It brings hope into hopelessness and guides our souls to realize that this life isn't the end of all that we live for, but we have a greater hope ahead. So what does this mean for you personally here today? What does it mean to be human? Is, is what it means to be human, I should say, is more than just the way that we are viewed by society. It's just the way that, uh, more than the mistakes or sins that befall us. Your destiny is not defined by the worst thing that you have ever done in your life or the worst thing that has ever been done to you. You are more than that. Guilt and shame isn't what makes you human. If Christ see the beauty of, of the man in this demonic possession, then surely we must see it for ourselves. Surely the reign of self-condemnation must end on what we believe what we deserve. What do I mean by this? I, I see many times working with youth students and children, but now more, especially over the last several years with adults, many come into church on a Sunday morning expecting, like this demon-possessed man does, to be tormented by Jesus. That coming to church means being made to feel more and more just self-condemning on yourself for your sins and looking for the Lord to punish you appropriately. What the Gospel of Mark is scandalously proclaiming today is that healing comes not from the torment placed on you, but the act of grace given by Jesus taking your judgment on your behalf. The act of torment that you thought you would receive from God has been given to his Son. And Jesus Christ is looking at all the sin in front of you with compassion and grace, seeing your humanity, seeing your dignity, looking beyond all of that and heals every part of you. In other words, today, if you came here expecting to be tormented, today, though you thought you would receive wrath, the beauty of Sunday is a reminder that Christ has set us free from the bondage and change that we have plagued our lives, things we thought would never change. This is the good news of the gospel for you. So I want to say to those listening, whether this is the first time you've heard this message or the millionth time you've heard this news, whatever sins are besetting you this morning, whether they from within you have been done to you, the gospel reminds you that God's grace towards you and posture in you and all of this is not asking to fix yourself before he will love you. That your dignity is not rooted in you getting your act together 
or even what the culture believes about you, that you no longer have to be controlled by the cosmic forces of Satan and his lies. The world, the flesh, and the devil no longer have a hold on you any longer because Jesus saves. That by trusting in the completed work of the cross, you trust in the completed work in your life that is already and not yet. That by faith in him alone, you have a salvation that no one can take away and no culture can destroy. That the power of Christ to heal resides over any darkness that Satan can bring. So this is the individual healing that Christ provides. But what about cultural healing? What about changing the culture? What is Jesus highlighting and signifying to this Gentile culture around him? How is he addressing what is happening? Jesus does so in a way that seems rather peculiar in our culture, in our understanding. Jesus honors the request of these demons to go into the pigs, and this causes for the pigs to be hurled into the sea, and there's a bunch of herdsmen here that are reacting to this. what's, What's happening here? What we see demonstrated here is the purpose and the intentions of the work at hand towards the culture. You see, the demons' purpose in all of this, in going to the pigs, was to reveal the true intentions with this man and the world around him. The purpose of the demons was simply to kill, to destroy, to steal. These demonic forces cause economic disaster for these herdsmen. They have just lost their cash cow, or their cash pigs, I should say, and they cause cultural turmoil. They leave a trail and confusion and harm in their pathway. The herdsmen have a choice here in this moment. Do they value the life of this man? Do they see Jesus for who he is? Or do they simply just value what they've lost? Jesus demonstrates the value of those created in his image by casting the demons out. And the value is this. One person made in the image of God supersedes all the monetary and economic gains and losses. Jesus brings about a cultural shift, a mindset that demands a response from the culture looking at Jesus, and Jesus is saying, what are you going to do with me? Will they value the life of this man who has been healed of demonic possession over their own economic prosperity? Will they see Jesus the same way this Healed man sees Jesus as salvation and healer. And the tragedy presented in this text is the culture of these herdsmen is that they cared more for pigs than they did the life of this man. And they feared Jesus more than they feared the demonically possessed man himself. These herdsmen, when faced with the reality of the power of Christ and the healing of the individual, instead of wanting more of Jesus, they ask him to leave. Even after sealing the healing power of God, seeing a man who could not be chained and now just resting calmly, sitting at Jesus' feet, they are now fearful of Christ than they are of the demoniac. There's a portion of this Gentile culture that has no idea what to do with a Jesus who heals and a Jesus who restores. And yet, for the healed man, the culture shifts for him radically. His life trajectory changes completely. He longs to be a disciple of Christ, and he thinks the best way to go about this is to continue to be with Jesus and his disciples, but Jesus has another plan for him instead. He says, go and tell your culture where you are about how much the Lord has done for you and the mercy and grace 
that he has given to him. And we see that there's this group of people that the demoniac possessed man reaches, that changes the culture. They marveled at the works of Jesus. These Gentiles who once did not know him at all are now amazed at the person of Christ and who he is. And they're amazed that someone that was so broken, someone that everyone had given up on, brought about change in his life and restoration. Jesus will always be a dividing point for our world because Jesus will always challenge every worldview to conform to the kingdom values of Christ. Jesus' kingdom contains people who once were thought to be enemies and brings them all together united in spirit and in truth to the one faith, one baptism, one God who is in all and above all. The great scandal of the church in Mark's day was that it brought together people from different classes, different ethnicities, different worldviews, and brought them all together in a demonstration of community and love so powerful that it changed the entire known world. And so today, billions of people worship on Sunday to this great God as Christ continues to challenge our culture into recognizing his values, his healing, his priorities, his kingdom. So what does this mean for us, church? A couple of just very brief application points here today. One, don't expect Christianity to conform to being loved by the world. There's a danger when we believe that the word of God needs to be changed every 10 years because people won't accept Jesus Christ if we really believe what Jesus actually said. If Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, then our expectation is that not everything should be accepted. Two, on the flip side of that, don't expect Christianity to always be so countercultural that you never reach the lost with the gospel. There is an opposite danger from cultural conformity, and in my view, uh, what could be a greater danger for us in Christians living today, in believing that everything that you will do will be hated as a believer. And so your response is to always trash the culture to serve as an excuse for not loving the world as Christ did. The greater danger to the growth of Christianity today is living in Christian bubbles and criticizing the lost from afar, proud that we know Jesus, but forgetting Jesus' command to the healed man. Go and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. You see, Christians can play the victim card of being so scared of the world that the world becomes an enemy instead of the world that God so loved that he gave his one and only begotten son. So we have to avoid those extremes. Three, realize that you today have a role here in shaping the culture, just like this man who told others of the saving power of Christ and the people around him marveled. So too, we can use the influence and spheres that God has given us to do the same in Christ-glorifying ways. And in this way, we have a part to play as the church of Christ in seeing our work as a part of the cosmic gospel. Too often the church has been relegated to preaching about individual salvation. And that is good and we should do that. But to say that the church has no part in playing in the renewal of Christ's kingdom goes against the very testimony of scripture. The Lord is restoring the entire universe to the values of his rulership and he is using the church as his hands and feet to do so. The forces of hell, no matter how powerful and strong, will fall under the voice and direction of this almighty and powerful God the end of the story, it's about being involved in God's redemptive work that will lead to an everlasting, never-ending kingdom 
you and I aren't just called to sit and ponder about Jesus. He is calling you, as he called this man, to cosmic restoration. What does this look like in the here and now? This all, like if you're at, tracking me with this point, this, this will seem very overwhelming, doesn't it? What does this look like? Um, I read a powerful story this week that I hope captures some of what this looks like for you and I in the here and now. A true story in a recent book released just last year called Love and Justice points the way of how we do this work. In October of 1998, a 16-year-old African-American teenager by the name of Jonathan Irons was wrongfully incarcerated for the shooting of a man in Missouri and sentenced as an adult for 50 years in prison with an additional 15 years for additional crimes they assumed he committed. Despite the fingerprint evidence proving that he couldn't have been there at the scene, prosecutors and detectives misled the jury with falsified evidence and sent him to the Missouri penitentiary system for a lifetime in prison on the basis of an eyewitness testimony that could only describe the color of his skin and no other features. The assumption was one of his humanity by the jury. The only reason why he was guilty was because he was poor, he was black, and he owned a gun in a predominantly white suburban neighborhood. He was sentenced to prison and could not attend the funeral of his grand aunt who had raised him and supported him. He watched men get shanked in prison cells and was himself stabbed with a knife. He experienced others unimaginable and unspeakable horrors. He was put into solitary confinement at times without cause, was denied to a chance to appeal his case whenever he found precedent for a retrial. Broken by the individual, cultural, and cosmic sins against him, he fell in love with Jesus. And he wrote a prayer to God in his prison cell, if we could have that written up here. I need to always feel your love, and now that I am your son, my dear Heavenly Father, you know that I do not belong here. Please do not delay my deliverance. I want to be able to say with total confidence and have proof that my Heavenly Father is my deliverer and my fortress, that you are truly merciful, and that you are a God of love. Christ had begun the work of changing this man's heart, despite all of the injustice done against him. Meanwhile, while all this was happening, another trajectory of another life was forming. Nine years after Jonathan Irons' wrongful conviction, Maya Moore, at the age of 16 years old, made the decision to play basketball at the University of Connecticut. A committed Christian and someone who took the call of her faith to love justice, do mercy, and walk humbly before the Lord, she fell into the national spotlight as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, women's basketball player on the planet. She met Jonathan Irons at 16 years old by chance through a family friend who was interested in Jonathan's case and began a friendship with Jonathan that lasted all throughout her playing career. A two-time NCAA champion, both undefeated seasons, two-time Olympic gold medalist, four-time WNBA champion, WNBA MVP, Rookie of the Year, All-Star MVP, League MVP, sponsored by Jordan, and was even at one point praised by the late Kobe Bryant that she should be playing in the NBA. In just five years at a professional level while playing internationally and winning championships in Russia and China and other places, just five years into her, her professional career, Maya Moore was simply the paradigm of success and accomplishment in every way, but she never forgot 
Jonathan Irons. And she started maintaining her friendship with him. As Jonathan, who had started in prison to learning how to code on computers, studying law, learning how to play music and, be de- and to shape himself to the man that God was calling him to be. And Maya knew that her commitment to the gospel and a growing interest in the welfare of someone whom she was beginning to love came into light. Maya realized that something needed to change drastically in order to pe- see Jonathan's case differently. So, in 2018, at the peak of her career, her success, and her salary, Maya Moore made the announcement that she was stepping away from the game of basketball to shed light to Jonathan's case and his situation. She started a nonprofit dedicated to the cause of releasing men like Jonathan in his position. And after two years of lobbying, pleading, while Jonathan was writing his own legal defense, working with lawyers, they finally got a retrial in 2020. And though the prosecution that resisted his appeal uh, were trying to subvert his freedom in every turn of the case, and though that the evidence that was brought forward for Jonathan's uh, acquittal was rock solid and, and, and was being resisted by the state, finally, finally, after 23 years of being falsely imprisoned as a 16-year-old man, he was released. And at that point, Maya and Jonathan were finally reunited, married, and gave birth to a son in 2022 for a family that Jonathan could never believe that he could have. I'd encourage you to read the book. If you, if you read the book written from both of their perspectives, you will see on almost every page where they point to the grace of God that brought them to the realization of who they were and the God that gave them hope in a hopeless situation. That God in his mercy could do what once was thought impossible. That Maya Moore's identity and purpose was more than to just shut up and play basketball. That God had given her a reason for the sphere and influence that she was given. And that she wanted to use that to help the culture see the value of God's kingdom. That the demonic forces of unjust sentencing, wrongful persecution, and lies could try to crush Jonathan's body but could never take who he was as a child of the Most High God. That though Jonathan had individual, cultural, and cosmic sins placed on him, he had a Jesus and a grace that was greater than all the sins in the world. And in turn, this helped us to see the gospel on display. That nothing is impossible with God in a world where change seems impossible. Friends, this story is a reminder for all of us. We may not be Maya Moore or Michael Jordan or have a position of celebrity influence, but we have a role to play in God's cosmic restoration of the universe that is just as important. We aren't living day to day, life to life, just trying to make enough money to retire and die. We are participating in the work of sharing the gospel in tangible ways that truly, that shows the marvelous Christ who heals the soul, who changes the culture, and redeems the world. And there will be a day when all the legions of demons will be cast away. Friends, there will be a day when the kingdom of God comes in full. But until that day, we continue to trust in the gospel for us. Until that day, we have work to do. So let's get to gospel business. Let's pray 